What Alibaba and Tencent have done is created national banking infrastructure. In China, national infrastructure is a national security. It's like highways, it's like power, and if huge amounts of your economy are being transacted behind closed doors effectively through a private enterprise, that's not okay for the Chinese government. Welcome back, everybody. I'm back on Analyze Asia podcast again. I'm Bernard Leung. Being back on the podcast, the first person I really want to talk to is my good friend, Shai Oster, the Asia Bureau Chief in the Information. Shai, it has been great to have you on the show. There's so much I want to catch up with you since we last spoke. Welcome back. Thanks. It's good to be back. It's good to see you back as a civilian, <laughs> discharged from the military, so to speak. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. Later, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Professionally, we have been witnessing a crazy cycle, the rise of the Chinese consumer tech on the global stage. Since we spoke as TikTok was emerging and going through the Trump attempted ban and the Trump dropped ban, and now TikTok is just as American as Facebook or Apple at this point. So that's one theme. And meanwhile, we've seen more of the tech lash in China which has been unbelievable to watch. There's been a bit of a thing called COVID-19, let us not forget. So I have been stuck in Hong Kong. I feel like a berserker Napoleon on Elba in a weird exile. Hong Kong, as beautiful as it is, is relatively small. We still have a three-week quarantine here, so I haven't seen my mom in nearly two years now. The kids are like, when are we going to go to Bali? And I'm like, when you, the epidemic is over, you little bleep kid. So we've had an epidemic. We've had some interesting social unrest and interesting developments in the Hong Kong political scene, which has led Chinese companies even to leave Hong Kong. <laughs> TikTok is not available in Hong Kong. They moved their servers when the new national security regulations were passed. So it's been an interesting couple of years. I'm going to start off by laying out the chronology. Since last November, it all began with the end financial IPO, which is botch in the last mm. minute, then followed by Tencent. Then you have the ByteDance. Pinduoduo CEO suddenly announced that they are stepping down. Now you have JD CEO stepping down to be executive chairman. You have a sudden Chinese government's regulation of the edutech and the gaming industry. I like the gaming one because they call it spiritual opium and then everything starts to blow up. After that, you have the courts declaring 996, which is the work culture of China to be illegal under labor laws. So my first question, what just happened? So there's a couple of things happening. One is that China is part of the world and there's been tech clash globally, America, Europe. So this whole realization that these tech giants um, become so powerful. And in China, there's the second issue of more powerful than the state in some ways. But that's a broader theme. Like regulators do look around the world and they learn from other regulators and they share. And there've actually been rules and laws that in China have been in the works for a long time and were finally being promulgated. So there was a legal basis for them to start acting on these things. Second thing is specific to China, not just the legislative process that actually some of these laws were finally enacted and hence these actions were taken, is that you have a major party Congress coming up in the fall where President Xi Jinping, the leader of the Communist Party, is likely going to be elected to be the chairman of the party for the next five years. There was a precedent that was set that leaders would only rule for two five-year terms, about 10 years at a pop, and Xi Jinping has changed that. He changed the constitution a while back to remove term limits. This is a big deal. There's going to be a, the party congress coming up, 
and where he's going to almost all, all expectations are that he'll be um, reelected, but also there's going to be it's a time for everybody in the party and in China the party is the government to assess their position and be assessed and be graded. It's like end of the financial year at a bank, and now is the last chance for everybody to get their final feathers in their cap to finally get their last deals. And this was actually an insight from a Chinese banker who was saying that everyone now is going to be scrambling to look really good for the party congress. So a flurry of half-baked regulations, and you can see there's this real herky-jerky element to it. One agency bans for-profit tutoring, and then the CSRC comes out and says the next day, calls all the bankers like, no, 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 we're not. And then again, somebody else nukes another industry, and a different agency comes out and tries to assuage all the bankers. There is a feeling of a herky-jerky zigzag to this. But he was saying that he expects even more overzealous, because you're not going to be punished for being overzealous. You're not going to be punished for being too much of Xi Jinping thought. No mid-ranking bureaucrat is going to be in trouble for striking too hard to make China's youth stronger and more virile. So you see all these things that are coming out and then some of them are walked back. But then what's going to happen is for the six months leading up to the party congress, there's going to be like when the books are closed and like all the assessments and the reviews happen. And for that six months, there's going to be absolute stasis. So six months, that brings us into the spring. You'll suddenly see everything frozen. No deals will be approved. Nothing will move because everyone's just going to be frozen in place, waiting for the books, their political careers PNL to be settled before the party congress. Up until that point, there's still going to be this kind of bananas last minute series of regulations and pronouncements. It was funny because as, as soon after he said this, the video game thing came out like, People were expecting restrictions on video games, but like three hours a week? Well, that's kind of nuts. Since then, there's been other moves in place that seemed so extreme. There's these two elements. The uh, cybersecurity law had been in, in the works for a while. Longstanding legislation finally being enacted. A broader international movement looking at the power of tech. This very specific Chinese political landscape where people need to look good in order to get their next promotion from being whatever provincial party chief to finance minister or whatever their next post might be. So I want to examine it from the Chinese government's point of view. So there are commentaries out there that the Chinese government is finally waking up to regulate these companies because China is sliding to gilded age similar to the US in the 1900s. There's a similar commentary on India by one of my friends, uh, James Crabtree, who wrote The Billionaire Raj as well about India's Gilded Age. Do you agree with that point of view or maybe there's some slight variation to what this point of view looks like? Well, look, certainly the wealth that was being created. So it's interesting. Was it 2015? Was that the Seattle Tech Summit? You had Xi Jinping meeting Bezos, Zuckerberg, the heads of Google and Microsoft. In that room was Chung Wei from Didi and Pony Ma from Tencent and Jack Ma from Alibaba, all there. Jack, Pony, and the rest, they were there as national flagships. They were the pride of China that we have built these truly global, valuable companies in the world. What the heck happened, right? In the span of a few years, they went from being 
going hand in hand, the power of the party and the power of these companies seem to be one and the same. Alibaba would help in building technologies for traffic management. Even during COVID, that was built on the back of an Alibaba initiative that was then rolled out as a nationwide model. So what's happened that shifted them from being the pride of China to almost villains? I think what happened was the wealth became, I mean, to a certain extent, the Gilded Age element is true, but the wealth and the power that these guys possessed hit a tipping point. This was an interesting analysis somebody made that what China saw happening in, in the U.S. was Facebook, where the platforms became arbiters of political truth. The Chinese officials saw this and thought, if it can happen in the U.S., it can certainly happen here. It's true that Alibaba and these companies exert enormous amounts of power over media. It's a censored media. At the end of the day, it's the Chinese government that decides what's said. But it's reactive in China. I used to work in China Daily a million years ago as a foreign expert, so I got to see how it worked. Everyone censored themselves, but sometimes they would get ahead of things. This is 1998. But it's not like every story goes to a central bureau and is then sent back out with a, with a check mark. I think that the challenges of the U.S. elections where Twitter and Facebook became so powerful that was a warning sign to the world. And I'm sure that even in the halls of Zhonglanhai, these are smart people who spend a lot of time looking at the world and seeing, wait a second, Facebook becomes the platform. And frankly, Chinese people spend even more time online than the U.S. You could see how that would be terrifying and they could see the implications. These are people who think deeply about politics and they spend a lot of time thinking about how do regimes stay in power, especially given that there's several key anniversaries. It's the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party, 70 years of the Chinese liberation. These anniversaries served as real milestones and it's the longest standing communist regime, now finally longer than the USSR. They think a lot about how to maintain power. They think a lot about how not to become Gorbachev. They're looking at how power is being deployed in other countries, who's yielding that power, and how these online platforms are now so powerful. Like having Trump kicked off the platform from Twitter. He was the guy with the nuclear codes. How can you kick somebody like that off of Twitter? Who's really in charge now? Jack Dorsey or the former president? I will take off the political perspective, but I want to focus on the legal side. What is the definition of antitrust for the Chinese government towards the China tech giants? So I'm not a legal expert, but I've spoken to some. It's not a question of how much market power these companies have. Overall, internet penetration is still growing and it's sizable, but it's not uh, 100%. It's not necessarily that they control the entire market, but it's that they're anti-competitive. The issue here was anti-competitive. The way Alibaba would force merchants to choose one platform. You could either be on Alibaba or you can be on Pindodo. You can't be on both. They have an enormous control, but overall, Relative to total commerce, the tech companies could argue that we only control 20% or whatever the percentage might be. But it's the anti-competitive nature of it that was the issue. The other question is then like a company like Tencent, it's nearly a monopoly if you consider the power of WeChat. Could WeChat potentially be seen as an anti-competitive tool because you can use your traffic, your billion users, to determine who wins or loses. Can there be a WeChat competitor? Too late for that. Arguably, they've been very careful about monetizing the ad inventory on WeChat. It's quite minimal, right? But it, that traffic can help a company like JD or Pinduoduo grow 
and then you can steer that traffic away from a competitor. That's why one of the interesting things that happened now is that the, the walls are being broken between the walled gardens. Alibaba and Tencent are now being forced to allow interoperability. Maybe you can start searching chat for things on Taobao or using WePay. It was not necessarily that they had monopolistic control of a market, but that they were anti-competitive. This is a very good point. A lot of people watching China uh, do not see all this kind of anti-competitive behavior significantly for the day-to-day -day person living in China, where you are either on Alibaba or Tencent. You cannot be living exactly. in both worlds exactly. as, as such. After watching the different issues, I have observed the pattern in China, and it's like an Asian parent. There are no carrots, only a stick. So I will use the recent 996 clamp down as an example, which I actually agree with the Chinese government on their position because this has actually happened to Japan and Korea in the 1980s and the 1990s. It took them a long time to stop the companies there, specifically in Japan, it's more the gaming companies where they have suicides happening. So they actually allow their work environment to evolve towards a better state. The way they start off is first, the Chinese government put an opinion in China Daily and asked everybody nicely, hey, can you please look into this and do something about it? The tech companies, maybe with the exception of Tencent, will do nothing about it. The next thing they see is a bulldozer running over there. Given that they are charging the tech, Chinese tech companies, 996 is illegal under labor law. There are two questions. What is going to happen to 996? And second is, why have the Chinese tech companies reacted so slowly? But I will give the exception to Tencent. That every time they get a complaint on gaming, they responded very quickly to the Chinese government on their criticism. So in China, the rule is always, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So you just do it until somebody slaps you and then, oh, I'm so sorry, we have a project. The other thing is labor law in China is a joke. There are very good laws in China governing overtime that are basically completely trodden over. There is no factory that follows the letter of the law. There are so many loopholes and at the end of the day, there's no one, there are no independent unions. These unions do allow collective bargaining, but they don't really serve the interests of the workers. And you just see abuses all over the place. I've written about it many times. For example, there's a maximum number of overtime you're allowed, but local governments will do things like, we know that you have a product coming up and you need to ramp up production. So we're gonna take all of your overtime that you're allowed over the year and let you do it in August. Well, well that means that, <laughs> Like you're working 100 hours a week. Then things like, we don't count the hours of overtime that are accumulated by full-time employees, but not by interns. And so all the factories are using interns. These guys from the vocational schools will have to do these internships where basically you're sitting there on the line. Their hours don't count. Or we won't count the hours of people who quit within two months. People come in, they work 100 hours a week, they're burnt out. So I'm taking the example of the factory floor and saying that's probably what's going to happen in tech. There's going to be talk and some examples will be made but at the end of the day like the companies will figure out a way there have been backlash so every other week you work six days a week you work on the day on the weekend and people are complaining because they needed that extra day of income same was true actually in the factory floors the overtime is something that in some cases the workers want they come in for their three months they work their tails off and they make some money so I, I think this is really window dressing. I don't think it's going to be, frankly, in Japan and Korea, it's not like they have anything like work-life balance. Let's be honest. There's still the work-to-death issue in Japan is still very much happening. There were a couple of high-profile cases this year in China where people worked to death. I know that these companies have 
a brutal work culture. We know this because when we try to interview people, they're like, call me when I get off at work at midnight. At some point, I think the legislation is going to have less of an impact than people just being like, screw this. I'm going to go to Lijiang and become a hemp grower and do like organic pastries. That's what's going to happen is like everyone was banking on like crazy bonuses and stock options and like, that's all vanishing. <laughs> Everyone's shares are like sand in between their fingers. They're looking at their future drifting away. And they're thinking, I've been working like a pack mule for two, five, whatever years. There goes my down payment on a Beijing flat as the stock options crater. I think that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to change the culture, not the legislation, because it just hasn't really been, broadly speaking, conditions for workers have improved. But that's almost as much just because there's less labor. The, the real reason why wages have gone up isn't because the factory decided to be nice. It's because there's fewer workers. The demographic shift, that's going to have more of an impact. The cultural, just people already actually see that, like, there's more and more people are trying to go back into government jobs and away from the tech because the promise of big payout isn't there. And that's what's going to shift the work culture. Like the companies will realize that maybe to attract people, we need to treat them like humans. In the past few months, we've seen the founders, CEOs of Chinese tech giants stepping down. I'm trying to imagine if Mark Zuckerberg ever stepped down from Facebook. Here's the list. You've got Richard Liu from JD, Colin Wang Ping Duo Duo, and Zhang Yiming from ByteDance. My question here is, is the pressure getting into them? And will we see more CEOs taking that position? The only few people left is Pony Ma from Tencent and Wang Xing from Meituan. So, I mean, Bill Gates stepped down from Microsoft. Google, you've seen a change of the guard as well. I think this is different. These guys are still, I won't get into names, but my sense and from our reporting is that they still pretty much run the companies. They may not be there. If you look, the, the new names, with the exception, say, of maybe Daniel Jang at Alibaba, the new leaders are not rock stars. They're as window dressing and i think the founders still control so much of the companies and still run the companies behind the scenes is what we've been told i understand there is the pressure to keep a low profile but it's not a changing of the guard as far as we've seen so you think that they will exert a lot of influence into the chinese tech companies that's what we've been told is that like Behind the scenes, they're the ones who run the company still. Mm. I want to get the Chinese perspective by separating out the different threats that's been going on in this conversation. So I want to go in the following order. I want to talk a little bit about Tencent and Didi, Alibaba, or N Financial, Meituan, ByteDance, Pinduoduo, JD, and some of the edu tech startups like Zhuoyebang and VIP Kit. So I'm going to start off with Tencent. I think when you look at the tech giants, whenever you read an important opinion from China Daily that criticized the tech companies, Tencent is the first to react. For example, I think when the Chinese newspaper actually labeled gaming as spiritual opium, which have connotations to the opium wars fought in 1842, they have reacted very quickly by providing parental controls. Obviously, it's not enough. Moving forward, what can Tencent do to cope with the increasing demand that China does not want their citizens to indulge in gaming or even in esports because that's supposed to be a growing field but now it's going to be taken away because of this point of view so everyone really admires 10 cents government relations they seem to be always one step ahead it could just be that they just read 
and pay attention more than other companies do. But they always do seem to be like one step ahead. Then again, it was a year ago where they couldn't get any new games approved and they had to tone down. Like they always know that games are culture, cultural products. It's like movies and books. These are things that are censored. They've always been aware of that. They've been trying to be careful. They've done a fairly good job of walking that line. In this case, how can they protect themselves? They argue that losing the kids is only 2% of revenue, but this is your future audience. Your future audience is now being weaned away from the habit of playing games. Like everyone I know who's really into games was into games as a kid. So that's gonna have an impact. One thing they are already doing is they're growing their international business very quickly. Now international revenue on their games accounts for about 25% of their global gaming revenue, which is pretty chunky. Chinese games are becoming hits in the U.S. So like Genshin Impact is a Chinese game. It's one of the top 20 in the U.S. Tencent has been buying studios all over the world and expanding its Timmy studios overseas. It's been hiring a lot in Seattle, Montreal, L.A., and I forget where else. One thing they can do to hedge is they can expand their overseas revenue. I think that 25% was 30% year on year as well. China still accounts. The gaming revenue is about one quarter of the global gaming revenue. It's about $50 billion. And so it's still the single largest market. But if you are big in Europe and in America and Southeast Asia, you can do well. Take a look at C, for example. They had one game, Free Fire. That has helped C... That one blockbuster has helped them like fund their money-losing but value-building shoppy. That's another case of a Chinese-developed game. From what I understand, the studios, the software engineers were all mainland-based, which is a whole other thing. I'm really into the idea that made in China is no longer hardware. Made in China is now software, which is a really interesting development. So Tencent, I think, is going to hedge its bets by expanding its overseas markets domestically they just have to toe the line now there's been periods of tightening and loosening tightening and loosening and we're definitely in a period of tightening they have to figure out other ways to grow the pie or or grow their market within china um the mini apps have become really successful that's e-commerce e-commerce as long as it's like not monopolistic or anti-competitive seems to be still a kosher place to be so they can balance their growth that way I don't think the government will completely clamp down games because it is an innovative industry. It brings in a lot of local taxes. There's a lot of local interests that will still want to keep those companies going. So I don't think they're going to like, although then again, like somebody pointed out, look, they just with, with the snap of their fingers wiped out online education, basically. And if they're serious about getting kids to go hunt and do manly sports as opposed to being in their computers all day, maybe they'll take more drastic actions. No one was expecting much of this. I, I, I do think that there's a lot of vested interest in keeping gaming going. That's $50 billion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of tax revenue. It's a lot of employment. So I don't think it's going to be wiped out the same way that online education was. Mm. Oh, at least I know Ponima will never call the gaming regulators people with pawn shop mentality. Definitely. So I'll come to <laughs> Alibaba. So let's start with M Financial. So the IPO is stalled. Alibaba Group has been under intense pressure. Our Financial Times have already reported that they will break up Ant's Alipay and force Ant to separate from its main businesses. The company's two lending units, Huabei, which is the, similar to a traditional credit card, and Xiebei, which makes the small and unsecured loans into a new entity and bring in our shareholders, which I assume the banks will probably be part of that corporate structure. 
what are the major changes that we are expecting with Ant Financial? Basically, Ant had become a, a highly risky leverage machine. The big issue with Ant was that it was facilitating a huge amount of debt without holding any of the risk on its books. That just became systematically dangerous. And once the IPO prospectus was coming out, that's when like the numbers became clear and it was just like, this is out of control. I think his speech wasn't the trigger. I think his speech was the reaction. I think that was like, he knew that these things were coming down the pipe and it's just like, well, screw it. I want people to know why this is happening. It's gonna become like essentially a regulated entity that has to bear the cost of what it lends. It has to put all that risk on its own books and that'll make it much more conservative. I suspect there'll be much fewer wealth management products. The data that it accumulated, it's probably gonna to have to share in some way with other financial institutions. This talk about like Sesame Credit, by the way, remember it was gonna be this enormous thing, it was already scaling back its scope. It'd become much more narrow and not as powerful as it was initially foreseen to be because the government actually wasn't satisfied and worried about them being able to determine so much of people's credit history. It's still gonna be a big, important company, but its scale and scope will be much smaller. What's interesting to watch out for is to look at what's going on in the rest of Southeast Asia where the governments have set up digital payments platforms that have wiped out or completely re rewritten the game. So in India, the government has created basically a neutral third-party platform that allows anybody with a bank account and a phone basically to transfer money. So they don't need to put their money in a digital wallet. That was a huge challenge for Paytm, but it creates a market where Google and others can equally compete. Similar things have been launched in Thailand, I don't see a reason why the Chinese government wouldn't look at this and say, if India can successfully create uh, a state-run platform, why should we be relying on third parties to be controlling effectively? What Alibaba and Tencent have done is created national banking infrastructure. In China, national infrastructure is a national security. It's like highways, it's like power, and if huge amounts of your economy are being transacted behind closed doors effectively through a private enterprise, that's not okay for the Chinese government. If India successfully managed to create a new system that channeled all that money through its platform, why the heck isn't China gonna do that? The work on the digital UN could maybe lead in that direction, although it has other aspects because of the blockchain. But I suspect that before long, we will start seeing news of a similar system to what's being done in India being rolled out in China. That would be my guess because basically it's about power and control. And the issue was that the Chinese government lost a lot of power and control to these third-party online platforms. Coming back to Alibaba Group itself, how do you see the businesses for them specifically in the e-commerce and cloud computing? Cloud computing is at least an enterprise business for Alibaba. So there's good news and bad news. Cloud computing, I think more and more Chinese companies are seeing the value in the cloud. There's definitely a boom we're seeing in enterprise software that will naturally lead to more people using cloud. However, Chinese government just said that anybody using government has to use government cloud. So they just lost a lot of clients. It's true for everybody, so that's the bad news. Just as the factory floor workers are becoming more expensive, 
employees everywhere are becoming more expensive and there's more reason to do more stuff online. COVID and, and remote work certainly sped that up. The pattern of investments that SaaS is becoming a real theme and that will definitely lead to more need for cloud computing. We're talking like millions and millions of small businesses. That's the thing is the Chinese economy is still dominated by small and medium enterprises. It's a hard market to crack because it's not like you just go and get one big customer and you get a thousand, but in the aggregate represents a lot of money. E-commerce, I think they have to be careful. Everyone earlier in the year was super excited about community group buying, which is basically neighbors clubbing together to buy stuff in bulk at a cheap price that would be delivered to the local bodega or corner store and go and pick it up and be like super cheap eggs, tomatoes. And it was logistically phenomenal because companies that had never done this before, like shipping a tomato or an egg is not easy. Like cold chain storage, not cracking it, not bruising the tomato. Like it has to be, these are logistically challenging problems and it boomed. Investors were pouring billions of dollars and the companies were pouring billions of dollars. But what this did is it wiped out or was challenging many layers of middlemen and middlewomen, which would be like the wet markets or the wholesalers because food in China goes from the farmer to the you know, regional to the layers of markets. These tech companies were coming in and displacing that. And by displacing that, all those layers of middlemen, they're saying, here's a cost saving that we can give to the customer and still make a profit. That's the, the thinking. Government's like, no, you're doing anti-competitive measures. You're pricing below market and it's cracked down hard. You can't do it because like we're impacting the stuff that like hurts people's livelihoods. E-commerce can be seen as empowering. As long as you portray what you're doing as empowering the, the little guy, the little woman merchant, as long as you align what you do with broader goals of like reducing income disparity and, and reducing the income gap, then you can still do well. I, I think it's really interesting to look at a company like Pinduoduo, their Wikipedia page. Pinduoduo was like the online discount retailer. They were like the Disney of shopping and it was like going to be like this whole thing. So now I, I click on Wikipedia, Pinduoduo is the largest agriculture-focused technology platform, connects farmers and distributors with consumers. What on earth? Oh, when I saw this, and I haven't confirmed this, don't take me to the bank on this one, and I'm sure they're going to be angry letters, but whoever redid their Wikipedia page calling it a, an agricultural product, now granted, it did start off initially with the bulk, buy 30 grapefruit, you'll get a discount, but then it was like Teslas and iPhones. So clearly everyone's like, okay, What's important? Agriculture, farmers, we've got to figure out how to make the farmers richer. So if you align your, your business with these political goals, with these policy goals, then you can do it. So I think Alibaba is very important. It still has millions and millions of small merchants on a Taobao platform. That part of it will still be safe and can grow, has a bright future. One of the key criticisms on the tech companies is that they're focusing a lot of consumer technologies, which you alluded to earlier that it can be exported, not just the hardware built in China. It's not aligned with the Chinese government's focus. They want to go into deep tech. They want to produce semiconductors. They want to have quantum computing and spaceship building. And what they really want is, okay, all these consumer tech giants, can you please get your engineers to do some useful work like material right. science? Can that actually be done? Because the workforce is so tailored towards things like high precision manufacturing. I think at least manufacturing is going upstream. I think consumer tech is also going upstream. So can they reskill to be producing semiconductors? 
I could see Alibaba's cloud computing need semiconductors for their servers. This is a really quirky situation where clearly they have the capital. If I'm a really good product manager at Tencent, I don't necessarily know how to make a, a silicon wafer. If you look at like the Chinese government's history of spending money on these projects has been abysmal. Just billions of dollars have gone up in smoke. It's really been terrible. Now there's this broad theory that like states are very bad at picking winners, but that's not true. Like Israel and even in the US actually, initially some of these projects were backed by government money. So DARPA seeded some of the biggest innovations, but yet China, it's not a good track record with the governments. Maybe the idea is that look, we've realized that as bureaucrats, we've been pretty bad at picking the winning technology. You guys have proven yourselves really good at picking winning technologies. Granted, you don't have the engineers, but you would probably figure out who's the engineer to back. We're already seeing some of that happening where strategic investments are beginning to happen. And not that they will incubate the tech themselves, but at least they know their commercial-driven decision-making process might work better than what the state has picked so far. It hasn't been a good track record for the state. It's really been just a series of disasters. Tapping that expertise in figuring out what's commercially viable might work. These are hard things to do. The fact is that like, there's only one company in the world that can do them really well, and that's TSMC. But that's a whole other kettle of fish to figure out how that is going to play out in the future. But mm-hmm. an Alibaba or a Tencent, being really good at building a video game does not mean you're really good at building uh, a chip. There's the whole thing with what happened with ARM and technology transfer, but this is a real struggle for the Chinese government. I, like They really want the cutting edge tech and the real economy stuff to happen. And that's happening. If you talk to the early stage VCs, they're already pouring, they see the winds of change. They're already looking a lot into biotech. But at the same time, what's really hot now? Cross-border e-commerce. Companies like Shein aligns with the policy goals of supporting export, but not really hard science. You're definitely seeing people betting on chip technology and biotech that they think there's a market for it, but it has the green light of policy. I want to pivot back to the conversation. So for example, Didi, what is the current status for them after the Chinese government took them off the app stores and investigating them for data bridges? The Chinese government told them, you shouldn't IPO in the US and they went ahead and do it. Of course, they get a backlash. So what's going to happen to them now? If I knew, I, I would have written the story. It, it's a huge question. The app ridership has actually done okay. There's been some rebound in usage, but now what's happening is that increasingly their competitors are trying to seize the opportunity. And what's happening is that people are choosing to go online or they're using like Alibaba's mapping apps, which is an aggregator of different ride hailing services. As opposed to opening Didi, you go to the Alibaba map app, it'll like give you a choice of multiple. So there's less of a stickiness to it. So these guys are closer and cheaper. I'll just use whoever it is. The investigation is still ongoing. It's pretty serious stuff. And then again, if you look at the other companies that were investigated at the same time, Boss Jerpin and Full Truck Alliance, Manbang, their share price has done a U, not back to the pre-investigation levels, but recovered pretty nicely. Investors are betting that these guys won't be hit the same way as Didi. It's complicated on so many levels because they were like Uber. Uber break the laws a little bit and do things a little loosey-goosey. To this day, Didi's drivers were not 
fully compliant with local laws in terms of licensing. In some cases, they couldn't be because the local governments hadn't come up with the compliance. In many cases, it was like the governments kind of knew, but they also needed this. Didi was like an important source of employment as factories were slowing down. So there was this whole kind of a messy situation going on, like compliance with the law. On the other hand, these guys were like being held up as one of the crown jewels of China tech. They beat Uber. What's the future? There are scenarios that are being bandied about from nationalization to take private. I, I just don't know. It, will they just get a slap on the wrist and a big fine like Alibaba? In this case, it's not just the anti-competitive issue. It's national security. That raises the stakes significantly, much more serious. I get asked by uh, people from the US and Europe to think about China. I always try to explain to them part of all these current regulatory crackdowns is because China wants to expand its population. They've mm. gone down to three child per family policy from a one child policy. The reason why they knew that edutech industry is because people are spending a lot of money trying to send their kids to all these online education stuff. Tech workers are doing 996 and hence they have no time for anything else. Young couples don't want to have kids so they go after 996 and then of course gaming if they are not doing anything useful they're probably just playing games on the side. The only way to do it is one by one taking all these problems and go the hard way. That's what the Chinese method really is. So I think the question I have is, let's go back to the edutech companies. Can I ask why the Chinese government has nuked their entire edutech industry? I mean, what are the underlying factors that drove them from these companies having a profit and now turned into non-profit companies? Look, arguably none of them were profitable anyway. Uh <laughs> Because <laughs> they were terrible business models. I did a little bit of reporting around that subject for a while ago. They've been telegraphing crackdowns on that industry for a while. So it wasn't entirely out of the blue. The way it was like high pressure sales tactics, calling parents up, doing deals with principals at schools. It was a corrupt business where like more and more of the school's resources would be spent on like the for-profit sides of like teachers moonlighting and just i think it really became an insidious force that was sapping the energy and, and the resources it just became like a really nasty business you can see how this would work it's not education in china because the stakes were so high was already ripe with corruption like people bribing for grades and I, i'm sure you've heard the stories of people who bought other people's Gaokao scores. I get it, but this feels like a really ill-thought-out policy because there's a couple of things that I've heard. One is this, I'll split up. I'll do a non-profit that, like, can still charge. Non-profit doesn't mean you don't charge. It just charges to cover my costs. And then the for-profit company licenses the teaching materials to the non-profit. Happens to be at the exact cost. I'll put all my crappy real estate holdings and everything in the, in the non-profit because it's non-profitable. And I'll be this nice, profitable business over here. That's one theory that I've heard. The other thing is that it is really feels like if, if you want to encourage people to have kids, tutoring isn't the problem. Housing is the problem. Fear of arbitrary detention and losing your income is the problem. So by arbitrarily wiping out an industry, everyone's like, oh, shit, see? <laughs> This is like, how can I trust the future when like things could vanish in a moment? The housing prices are insane relative to what people's incomes are. I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts yeah. on the Evergrande situation? 
I'm very confused. It's not like they borrowed this much money without anybody noticing. Like, why now? Like, why? They have an enormous amount of debt. But it was like everybody knew this was going on. I think there's another story behind this that is triggering their downfall. The smart people that I've read say this won't have a contagion because the Chinese banking system is state-controlled. So you say, freeze assets, you allow people to lend or not lend. It's not like a choice that the bankers will make. But there's a lot of international exposure. I don't know how that's going to play out. I've asked around some analysts, and their reaction was, unless you're exposed to Evergrande, don't worry about it. But they have millions of flats, millions of unbuilt flats. That means like the guy who lays the carpet, the woman who designs the windows, the, the person who installs the oven, the lady who does the lighting. And some of those people got to be on Taobao. <laughs> so I have a fervid imagination. I could see how this can spin out in so many ways. I have a pretty good sense that the government will step in and say, you are now owned by Bank of China. This housing project is going to be on the books of Bank of China. They'll pay the bills They'll collect the rents and the income. Then they'll sell it at, at an auction a couple of years from now and maybe even make some money off of this. They can, can use the that. common prosperity funds from the tech companies to fund it. Well, it, it ain't going to be. Those common prosperity funds are a drop in the bucket. This is $300 billion. These guys are what? All told, maybe 50, like 15, 10. No, 10 cents is 100 billion. They were originally doing 50 billion. Okay. Is that rem, remnant B? So we're talking dollars here. Mm. B, that's... Sure. The remnant be stronger, but still, I don't know that I've seen a, a clear accounting of the full implications of what this will mean. I, I do know that the government does have powers that other co countries don't. The other thing that the Chinese government has an enormous store of goodwill. A bank run doesn't happen necessarily because the bank doesn't have money. It's because people think it doesn't have money. The government's done pretty well. They've contained COVID, for crying out loud. I'm sure they got this. Then things will be fine. If something happens where people lose faith, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. But it seems that so far, there's a feeling, let's give them a chance. There's a cushion of goodwill in the market, I think both domestically and internationally. Maybe they can handle this. They've handled H&A. They've handled a bunch of other big collapses and it hasn't melted down. Let's wait and see. So what happens to the VCs who are heavily invested in the edutech space in China? And with these new regulations, where are they going? And the private equities, where are they going to place their bets? If you're an edtech, it's gone. Unless I have heard this thing, we'll just hive all the money losing parts of our business into the nonprofit and we'll have a for-profit that sells material to the nonprofit. Maybe some of these companies will actually figure out a way to do that. Others are quickly scrambling to figure out like, oh, people need to learn how to code. So coding isn't school curriculum. Maybe some will survive. I think a lot of people are going to get burned. VC investing is still very strong. One of the most interesting things I saw was, this is going to last year, but FDI into China was at a record high from the US, despite the trade war. Foreign direct investment from the U.S. was at a record high last year in the middle of the Trump trade war. So people still are very interested in the China market. What is happening, though, is much greater interest in Southeast Asia and India. Huge IPO boom in India now, one after the other. Grabs insane 40 billion SPAC. Definitely investor interest is 
looking around more broadly at other plays, Southeast Asia and India are definitely benefiting from the uncertainty in China. I've heard a certain amount of private equity is saying China's uninvestable. It's just crazy. On the other hand, there are actually now like foreign companies are able to manage mutual funds in China. There's actually a lot more opening up in terms of the financial system, like cross-border stuff is actually increasing in terms of the financial systems. So I, I think others will see an opportunity. For every like teacher's pension fund that pulls out of China, others will pile in. I think around the Olympics, you're going to see pressure and calls for boycotts and whatnot. But in the meantime, some are being more cautious. Even SoftBank is being more cautious about its China portfolio, although still investing, but more cautiously. That does mean that there'll be more attention paid on companies like Biju in India. The Zomato IPO sees incredible rise. That's really opened up people's eyes to the potential of other markets. I mean, when they read business plans of companies that they invest, they just need to make sure that there's something in the competition risk section. They just have down political risk is just one problem. Didi did, to its credit, it did say political risk. So like the U.S. markets effectively... The big shift that's going to happen is how Chinese companies are effectively losing the path to the U.S. markets, right? But the Hong Kong market isn't exactly rolling out the red carpet. It's actually making it tougher for them, raising some of the profitability requirements. People say that Hong Kong's smart. They'll like figure out that this is their opportunity and they better figure out a way to capitalize it. A company like Didi would have a hard time listing in Hong Kong because in the U.S. it's like buyer beware. As long as you disclose it, I am listing a piece of toast. You said it's a piece of toast. The risk is that it will be dry and not very tasty toast. So fine. But in Hong Kong, there's actually a committee that vets it and says, we think listing a piece of toast is a terrible idea, so we're not going to allow it. Mm. So it's as opposed to a buyer beware in the US, you cannot show up in Hong Kong and be like, we have a business, but like legally, most of it's in the gray area is not going to fly in Hong Kong. That listing committee will likely not approve it. It has kicked back companies saying that, look, your regulatory issues are just too great. We cannot allow this to list. Whereas in the U.S., as long as you tell people that like you're operating in a legally gray area, we're fine with it. As long as you meet our disclosure requirements, we're okay with it. As long as the investor is aware that you're listing a paper bag with five jelly beans inside, that's their business if they want to invest in it. As long as they know that this is a paper bag with five jelly beans. So are Chinese tech companies now focusing on overseas expansions from now on. For example, I read in the information that ByteDance is already in talks to borrow up to $5 billion to fund their overseas expansion. Even before the domestic competition is so intense, there was always a reason to go overseas. Now, I think there's a maturity in the competence of the domestic software engineers and product managers. I did a profile about a company called Asia Innovations which is entirely about overseas markets. It's uh, China-based engineers and product designers, but they just look at overseas markets. ByteDance has to borrow because all of its revenue is in Remnant B. And capital controls means you can't easily take that money offshore. So you got to figure out for daily operations, you need money offshore. And they have huge operations offshore through TikTok. That's a lot of servers that they got to pay for. About half of that uh, and half of that is that we pay some debt at a lower interest rate. But yes, Tencent is looking much more to grow its overseas income. Alibaba, they have that footprint in Southeast Asia. It's been a mixed story for them. I think they're probably distracted now with keeping things together in China. I don't think they'll be looking overseas much yet. Hinduado, as far as I know, has almost no international footprint. Meituan... 
the founder certainly has investments all over the place and in India. They're going to be dealing with like how to maintain their company going in China before they look overseas. Mm. That said, though, the cross-border thing is real. A ton of cross-border focused companies. Again, Shein, really a success story. Yes. Okay. You can argue that like some of that has to do with the particularities of these tax rebates that they're able to enjoy that makes their business more profitable. They've had some trouble with labor practices actually coming from Chinese press, which is interesting. Their investors include Tiger Global. The argument that for Shein works is that they're able to do, they're like a Zara model, but so it's just in time, but with like much narrower inventory. Because they have good relationships with the factories, they, they don't need to produce 10,000 pieces. They can do 100, see if it sells online, and then order more. So their costs are much lower. They don't have to hold all that inventory and then offload it when it doesn't sell. There's less risk because they can see immediately like, this is a hot item. Call the factory. I need 10,000 of them. Does the future look bleak for US tech companies based in China? For example, Apple, Tesla, LinkedIn. Apple had its moments. It has been up and down and actually doing quite well now, relatively speaking. It's actually grown its market share in the past couple of years. Remember, at one point, like Huawei was really eating into it. Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo. And it's actually grown back. They make a good product. They employ a lot of people. They helped create the Chinese industry. All those factories that were trained by Apple engineers now supply Xiaomi, Oppo, and Vivo. So they really contributed an enormous amount to the growth of China. Now, does China still need Apple? I don't know if they need them, but it certainly needs their employment. These are millions of people who are dependent on Apple's continued success. Tesla... Again, up and down, but they were given concessions that no other automaker was given. It was a wholly owned enterprise. Every other automaker had to do a joint venture with a Chinese partner. He's run into trouble, but the domestic sales seem to be doing okay. The last numbers I saw, I think they were going stronger again. There's a little bit of a push and pull, but this recent at the Wujen conference just this weekend, Elon Musk was one of the people presenting prepared comments as was Qualcomm and Intel. If he's allowed to speak at Wujun, that's the government seal of approval. I think definitely, broadly speaking, the atmosphere for foreign companies in China is a difficult one. Companies complain that it's becoming increasingly difficult to operate. Mm -hmm. But those companies that you mentioned will continue to do well because they offer something that the Chinese still want. I, I think we're in such a weird period. You cannot discount the importance of this transition of this five-year party congress. It's really a monumentous occasion. And it's a time of nervousness and of uncertainty. A, a lot of strange things will continue to happen. And there's also, at the same time, the, the Chinese nationalism is super high intensity now. I've had people turn down interviews because they're afraid of the backlash they would get from Chinese. So oh, I can't talk to a Western media first because it will be pilloried by the Chinese. And they're not saying, oh, the government will go after us. It's like the Chinese public. So there's this Chinese nationalism plus this like politically incredibly important moment. And these are the things that are going to be the challenge that companies stumble upon. If I were to take what you just say, and then I'm just going to ask... Where are we now with the Chinese tech giants being clamped down so heavily? Is the worst over or are we just at the beginning or we don't know? What would the Chinese technology space look like when all this dust settles? 
I mean, you're asking me quite like. If, I, if I, I I do recall reading editorial from Jessica Lesson that you say you can only give an opinion by the beginning of next year. Exactly. Yeah. We'll have an idea after November what's going on. I think the key moments will be what happens to Didi. You will, you will learn a lot about everybody else's fate by what they decide to do with Didi. If they dismantle it, if they go hard, if people like. You can imagine the worst case scenario and you can imagine the best case scenario. But that'll reveal a lot about what the rest will expect. But that's a black box now. No one really knows what's going on with that. I, I think in November, we'll have a better sense of what's going on. I, I do feel that there's a chance, like broadly, what do they want? It's not just to punish the big tech companies but it's to allow other tech companies to grow. Let's take it at not as a political thing, but let's look at the policy. At face value, these are things you can get behind. We want there to be more than like three big companies. We want there to be more competition. So if you play that out, then maybe six months from now, or a year from now, there will be multiple viable e-commerce platforms, multiple viable cloud providers, multiple viable ride-hailing companies. Like maybe that's the outcome not necessarily a, a period of, of terror <laughs> but a period of flourishing for more entrepreneurs if that's really what if we take it at face value i think when we do the review episode and this is probably the fifth year <laughs> the yes. end of the year uh, i will get another answer again when i ask this question maybe that would be the time to talk about sure. it so shy many thanks for coming on the show our closing is going to be pretty unique. Since this is our first conversation after I stepped down for a while, I remember you made an interesting observation on the tech company which I used to work for, which I have just left. And of course, I love the company even though I depart and we haven't really speak to each other than sending Christmas greetings to each other over years. But every now and then when I bump into an ex-colleague and then tell them a wise friend of mine made this quote to me and they wholeheartedly agree. So I'm going to give you the microphone so I think you want to tell them what was your advice to me. I think you should mint it into an NFT, by the way. That I said that Amazon is a Chinese company and it's just that they don't know it yet. From the work culture, that might be true now that I think about it again. <laughs> I don't know. You talk to a lot more Amazon people than I do. So I'm going to leave them to tell you whether it's true or not. But I just want to ask the next two questions. The first one is any recommendation of books, movie, podcasts that inspire you recently? Yes, I'm listening to Acquired. I'm listening to their one actually on TSMC. That was a fantastic uh, episode, by the way. That was recommended by a friend of mine. So I'm making my way through that. And then I've been watching a lot of dumb movies. I did enjoy Dune. So how can my audience find you and the information? At theinformation.com, I am at shy, S-H-A-I, at theinformation.com. I'm also on Twitter at Beijing Scribe. And reach out. I'm always happy to hear from people if you have complaints, ideas, story ideas, pitches. Just if you see anything interesting you think I should be paying attention to, by all means, reach out. Shai, many thanks for coming on the show. And of course, you can find us in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other platforms. And of course... Uh, we are going to be rolling out our new subscription model and we would look forward to all your support to us to make this sustainable and viable. This is my first time back on the mic. I hope I'm not too rusty, but I look forward to speak to you again. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure.